We turn in God's holy word to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 27. We read through verse 56. The text is Matthew 27, verse 45. So for our scripture reading, Matthew 27, beginning at verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation, written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard this, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias, Elijah. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent 
and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. And that's as far as we read for tonight. The text is verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, by way of introduction, I want to point out two things, two things about this passage, two things that we should be mindful about right from the outset of looking at this passage. First of all, I want to point out that with this passage of Scripture, we are standing on holy ground. We need to be impressed with that right from the outset. Now, I know with every passage of Scripture, we are standing on holy ground because Scripture is the Word of God, and every word also reveals to us Jesus Christ and, and our holy God and who He is. But this passage, I think in a special way, needs to be treated with holy care. And I think you can appreciate that when you consider that the text this evening is all about darkness. That's what our text is. For three hours, there was thick darkness that enveloped the land. And and that darkness is expressing to us that what we have here is a holy event And when we treat it, we have to treat it reverently and carefully. And it's very striking, really, in the whole text of the sermon, that there's nothing for us to see. There's nothing here tonight to look at. There's nothing to record. There's only three hours of darkness. Three hours of darkness in which Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, God of God, light of light, true God of true God who became incarnate and was born of the Virgin Mary in which our Lord Jesus Christ entered into the deepest reproaches and agonies of hell. Three hours of darkness in which our Savior was in hell. Endured hell. How can we preach on this? How how can we enter into this with our thoughts and our minds? How can we preach on something that is such a holy and terrible event that even God Himself enshrouds it with thick darkness? So with this passage this evening, we are standing on holy ground. We need to appreciate that. Second of all, I want to point out that this event that we look at this afternoon stands at the very center of of all of history. These three hours of darkness don't just stand in the middle of the day that we call Good Friday from 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon. 
But these three hours of darkness, in fact, stand right in the middle of all of history. Of the one day of world history, these three hours stand right in the middle. This is the day when Jesus' hour has come. This is the day when God will showcase His love and God will showcase in a most profound and unfathomable manner His attributes in a way like He doesn't show them in any other way, maybe if I can say that. In a, in a special way. All of history revolves around this moment in time. All of history has this really as its focal point. Jesus Christ and His great work of redemption. All of eternity for you, looking forward, is shaped and determined by what happens on this day and what happens in these three hours of darkness. Because this is where your Savior goes to work in a special way bearing the punishment of all your sins, enduring the agony of God's wrath against your sin, falling under that devastating word of God's curse for you. So that you might never know that darkness, not for a split second, and that you might not have an eternity of that thick darkness consuming you. But you might instead know God's blessing, and you might know the light of eternal life. So this event stands at the very center of all of history. Those are two things I wanted to bring to your attention as we now approach this passage in detail and, and look at it a little bit more. We take as our theme this evening, darkness at Calvary. And we look at three things. First, we look at the wonder, the event. Second, we look at the explanation, what we can give for an explanation at least, And then third, the comfort. Even the children know that Jesus hung on the cross for for six hours, from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. During the first three hours that Jesus was hanging on the cross, the sun was shining. And during those first three hours that Jesus was on the cross, there was much activity, there was much commotion. First of all, think of Jesus Himself. Jesus was active with those first three crosswords. Jesus praying for forgiveness for His own. Jesus comforting the thief next to Him. Today thou wilt be with me in paradise. And Jesus, we saw, also providing for His mother's care after His death. Jesus was active during those three hours. The chief priests were also very active. They had gone to Pilate and registered their objection against the superscription that had been nailed Above Jesus on the cross, they had followed Jesus to the place of super, uh, to the place of crucifixion, and and they had jeered at him and taunted him incessantly. The Roman soldiers were also very active. They had dug the hole for the cross. They crucified Jesus. We read they parted his garments. They cast lots over his seamless robe, and now they were standing guard over this gruesome scene. There's all kinds of activity during those three first three hours of darkness. People walking down the street past the cross, wagging their heads and mocking Jesus. John, we saw, bringing the women to the cross and then bringing Mary back to his home. And if you would have looked at the cross during those first three hours with the sun shining, well, that cross of Jesus Christ would have looked like the crucifixion of, of any other person. It would have appeared emphatically as the work of men, as if God wasn't here in all these events. It looked like 
any other normal crucifixion. Crucifixions were not a rare thing. But then suddenly, after those first three hours of activity, there was a change. And all that activity at the cross suddenly came to an abrupt end. Jesus was quiet. The chief priests were quiet. The Roman soldiers were quiet. Everything became quiet and still as a thick, paralyzing darkness descended upon the entire land. It was high noon. At the time when the sun should be shining in its brightness. And we read from the sixth hour, Jewish time, noon, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And you can imagine that as the darkness enveloped the land, all the people became still and fell silent. What was this darkness? Well, it certainly wasn't a natural darkness. It wasn't merely an eclipse of the sun. That only happens for a brief moment. It certainly wasn't a darkness created by a a volcanic eruption or, or the ash from a forest fire. That's clear from the fact that this darkness suddenly came upon the land at high noon and then lasted three hours and then suddenly was lifted again. It was not a natural darkness. This was unnatural. This was a miracle of God. And all the people, no matter how drunken in unbelief they were, no matter how stupefied in contempt for the Christ they were, all the people there knew that something unusual Something miraculous, something frightening was taking place. So that even the Roman soldier says, truly, this was the Son of God. Perhaps the only thing that you could hear during those three hours was the heavy panting of Jesus as He continued to breathe in the air as He was hanging on the cross those three hours. How are we to picture this darkness Well, in Luke's account, in Luke 23, verse 45, we read, And the sun was darkened. And I picture it this way, that when the darkness descended upon the earth, there was a time when the gloom overshadowed the sun so that you could see the sun perhaps as a pale disk through the gloom. But then very swiftly, very quickly, that that pale disk passed into darkness and a thick darkness suddenly enveloped the whole land. It became nighttime over the whole land of Canaan. Although there was no moon shining either, no stars, it was darkness. Now using the language found in Luke's account that the sun was darkened, some will say that that means that this was a darkness that covered the whole earth. That the sun itself was darkened. The sun, as it were, faded in the sky And that means that there was no sunlight that came to the earth for three hours that day. Others will emphasize the language found in Matthew and Mark and say that the darkness was over the land. And that means it was limited only to the land of Canaan. It was a darkness that fell over the whole earth, over the whole land, not the whole earth per se, but over the land of Canaan. I think either option is possible. I don't know if we can determine what the case was. Either way, we understand this was something miraculous. And as far as the darkness itself, I think we can picture the darkness in a few different ways. First, think about the darkness that came over Egypt 
way back in the book of Exodus during the ten plagues. Remember the ninth plague that fell upon Egypt was darkness for three days. And in Exodus 10 verse 21, we read that that darkness was not just any ordinary darkness, but we read it was a darkness that could be felt. There was a darkness that fell over the land that that could be felt. A thick darkness, a soupy blackness, like a blanket thrown over the land. I think we can say that the darkness at Calvary was perhaps similar. An unnatural darkness that could be felt. Even the kind of darkness that's so thick that it even muffles the sound in the air. For another passage of Scripture, think of the kind of darkness that will fall upon the world at Christ's second coming. In Mark 13, verse 24, when Jesus is giving His disciples concerning the last, di- last days, Jesus says, But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun shall be darkened. The sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light. And that's the same language that Luke uses. The sun was darkened. And I think comparing this darkness to the darkness of Egypt and the darkness that will fall on the earth on the last day is appropriate because those instances of darkness indicated God's judgment. God's judgment was falling upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh and God's judgment is falling upon the world. And now here too in, on Good Friday, it's the same thing. We have God's judgment falling upon Calvary. The point is, in the middle of the day, the daytime became as the nighttime. It was as if God Himself put His hand in front of the sun so that the sun could no longer shine its rays on the earth. This was quite obviously a very unique miracle that God performed. What's interesting is that this was prophesied in the Old Testament. At least indirectly, this was prophesied. And we've seen this over and over again. Every time you turn to the events of Jesus' crucifixion, you see Scripture being fulfilled. Judas agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And that's the fulfillment of prophecy. We saw that, Zechariah 11. Judas, who eats bread with Jesus in the upper room and then is dismissed and, and he does that dastardly deed of betraying Jesus. And that's the fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 41, my own, my own familiar friend who ate bread with me betrays me. Even last Sunday... With Reverend Marcus, you looked at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, riding on a colt, the foal of an ass. And that was the fulfillment of prophecy too. And there's so many prophecies being fulfilled. In a sense, this whole event is the fulfillment of prophecy. It's the fulfillment of all prophecy. In a sense, Jesus, the seed of the woman, crushing the head of the serpent. But now here, this, this little sliver of this event too, the darkness, is the fulfillment of prophecy. In Amos 8, in the Old Testament, Amos 8, Amos speaks a word of judgment upon those who oppress the poor and the needy. And in Amos 8, verse 9, Amos writes, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. I will cause the sun to go down at noon. And back in Amos 5, verse 20, Amos writes, Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark, and no brightness in it? And that's what's happening here on Good Friday. It's a clear and sunny day in Jerusalem. 
Jesus is nailed to the cross. There's all kinds of activity. The cross appears to be the work of mere men. And then suddenly, the sun goes down in the middle of the day. There's darkness. And God darkens the earth in the clear day. And it's an altogether sobering and sublime and terrifying event. Well, all of, us, all of this leads us to ask the question, what does all this mean? This is a very powerful, miraculous event, but what's the explanation for this darkness? We already mentioned some things in passing, but let us go into more detail. First, with this darkness, God Himself uses the darkness to call everyone's attention to what's going on here at the cross of Calvary. God is calling everyone's attention to the death of His Son taking place on Calvary. You see, for the first three hours of Jesus' crucifixion, it seemed as if this was just another ordinary crucifixion, that this was just routine. But now with this darkness, God is speaking to the world, telling everyone this is not just man's work. This is God's work. This is primarily God's work. And with that three hours of darkness, God is, in a sense, causing everyone to pause what they're doing. Stop everything and pay attention. God would not permit the world to go on carrying its business as usual while His own only begotten Son is going through hell on the cross. God would not allow this central event in all of history the death of His only begotten Son to take place with, with, with people acting casually, with, with no one noticing. But God causes the entire land, perhaps the entire world, to come to a standstill and have three hours of silence and take notice as the central event in all of history, the redemption of God's elect people takes place. And God in the flesh suffers the unspeakable agonies of hell. That's the first thing. What's going on here? Second, with this darkness, God signifies His own judgment against the wicked world. See, with these three hours of darkness, God is giving the whole world a sense of His wrath against this unspeakable sin that the world is committing. This is the greatest crime in all of history being carried out, crucifying the King of glory, the beloved, well-beloved Son of God. And God, with these three hours of darkness, is proclaiming that this is the judgment that will fall upon the wicked, impenitent world those who are not hid in Jesus Christ. This is a foreshadowing for all the world, a foreshadowing of the great day of judgment when the sun will be darkened at Christ's second coming and everyone will stand in silence as the great judge executes His judgment on the wicked. Just listen for a moment to these words. This is from Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 11. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate. And he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it, 
For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her, sun, her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And now here in the darkness of, God, of Good Friday, God is giving a foreboding a foreshadowing of that terrible day of judgment that will fall upon the world at Christ's second coming. Third of all, the explanation is this. Third of all, especially this, this darkness has to do with God's judgment upon Jesus Christ Himself. That darkness that fell over the whole land was a sign of God's judgment falling upon Jesus I think we understand that. That's what darkness represents. Darkness represents judgment. I've already given you a few passages. That, that was true in Egypt with the ninth plague. Just before the final plague, the death of the firstborn. This speaks great judgment. Darkness. Darkness is a symbol of judgment. Listen to these words. Joel chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. In Joel 2 verse 10 we read, The earth shall quake before them. That also is what happened in this event, isn't it? The earth quaked. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And then in Joel 2 verse 31 we read, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And what this darkness on Calvary's hill is telling us is that this right here on Good Friday, this is the day of judgment for Jesus. For Jesus, His death on the cross is His day of judgment. God Himself is coming down upon the land to judge Jesus, and God is there in the darkness, in His fierce wrath, in His cruel anger, to visit Jesus in His judgment. You see, in this darkness, this thick darkness, God is damning His Son. In the darkness, Jesus is being cast into hell. In His soul and in His body, Jesus is enduring the just wrath of God against the sins of His people. And you see, that's why the darkness is so fitting. It's so perfect. Because isn't that exactly what hell is? Outer darkness. Isn't that how Jesus describes hell? A place of outer darkness. And you see, that's exactly what's happening to Jesus in those three hours of darkness. Jesus is being cast into outer darkness, hell. Jesus is being separated from everything, from everything. No fellowship, no communion, entirely isolated so that he might, in his loneliness and isolation, only experience the wrath of God against our sins. He's separated from every kind of fellowship. Fellowship with man, certainly. And now also, fellowship with His heavenly Father. 
He gives expression to that. That's what the outer darkness is. These three hours of darkness. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that in the darkness all light is taken away and the light of God's countenance totally taken away. See, this is judgment, beloved. This is the absence of all comfort, of all safety, of all security. It is complete outer darkness. No light, no life. This is hell. This is excommunication, beloved. This is what excommunication is. This darkness is God thrusting Jesus out of His presence. He is entirely, absolutely alone. No society, no company, no interaction with others. He's excommunicated. That's what everyone will experience who goes to hell. This is Jesus, the scapegoat, being sent out into the wilderness on the Day of Atonement. The wilderness of hell. The wilderness of God's wrath. This is God coming at Jesus with judgment from above, even using creation itself to express His wrath against Jesus. No shining sun for you, Jesus. The lights will be put out. This is my wrath upon you. With this darkness, God is thrusting Jesus outside of life in every single way. Just think about it. What do you need for life? You need light. Without light, there is only death. And that's exactly what Jesus is experiencing. Only death. Yes, physically He's still alive. In His body and in His soul, He is alive. But even as He's alive in His body and soul, He's experiencing the fullness of death. His whole being experiences the fullness of death. And and then in addition to all of that, to build on that, this darkness also helps us, helps to express the idea that all this suffering that Jesus experienced is unfathomable. it's, It's in the darkness. You can't plunge it. You can't grasp it. It's infinite. Congregation, I want you to think about that for a moment. What happens in the darkness? Have you ever been in the darkness? Utter absolute darkness. I, I was thinking about this this past week. I remember when I was a little boy and the lights were out of my bedroom and I must have had a bad dream and I, I was lost in the closet and, and I woke up and I was in absolute outer darkness and it was terrifying as a little boy. You're completely lost, completely disoriented. Have you, have you ever been engulfed in that kind of darkness? You can't see a thing. What happens? What happens is this, you lose all sense of space. You suddenly become utterly lost. There's, there's no sense of direction, no sense of location, and it's absolutely terrifying. Where are you? You don't know. You're in absolute darkness. And then second, not only do you lose all sense of space, but you lose all sense of time. There's no light. There's absolutely no way to determine any passage of time. There's no movement at all. There's nothing to see to gauge the passing of time. In the daytime, we tell the passage of time by the movement of the sun. And at nighttime, you can see the moon and the stars and even the clouds moving. You see that there's time going on. But when things are utterly dark, there's no sense of time. You are simply consumed and annihilated by that extreme darkness. And I think that too is what this darkness at Calvary is giving expression to. Jesus is entering into that kind of unimaginable darkness 
And in the isolation and loneliness of that darkness, there is nothing for Jesus. There is absolutely nothing, no foundation to stand on, nothing except the reality or the responsibility, the crushing responsibility of bearing the weight of all the sins of His people. Yeah, we we read this passage. We see that there's three hours that Jesus goes through. But what was it like in the midst of that three hours for Jesus? When that suffering must have seemed like an eternity as He's cast into outer darkness. That darkness, therefore, expresses the infinity of God's wrath. Infinite sufferings. In fact, so extreme are the sufferings of Jesus Christ in those three hours that if it were not for His divine nature upholding His human nature, Jesus would not have been able to bear up under the extreme wrath of God. Such were Jesus' sufferings that His entire human nature, His entire being, in every part of His body and in every part of His soul is crushed and in agony and is entirely spent. The intensity of His sufferings is such that it consumes the utter extremities of His capacity for suffering and tension. So that this man of sorrows is utterly consumed by the wrath of God. He experiences the humanly impossible experience of suffering an infinite burden of wrath in a finite period of time. And all of this is captured for us. God communicates this to us by having this whole event enshrouded in three hours of darkness. That darkness is but the visible expression for us, even of the, the invisible inner darkness that Jesus experienced in his soul. This is hell, beloved. This is hell. This is the day of the Lord for Jesus. This is the day of judgment. And in these three hours, lost in that spaceless, timeless expanse of these three hours of darkness, Jesus suffers for all the sins of His people. And yet Jesus was alert for all of it in His full consciousness. He was awake for all of it. He was numb to none of it. That's why He refused to drink that myrrh, that that vinegar with, with gall, so that He could be perfectly sensitive to this extreme outer darkness. And he labored in that darkness. He labored. He continued to love God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. He continued to love his God perfectly, even as he himself was being thrust into that outer darkness. And all these sufferings we are speaking about are unfathomable. I speak here this evening words, but we will never come to know what Jesus experienced in those three hours of darkness. It's far too deep for us. We only scratch the surface of it. We can only babble a little bit about it. And perhaps that's another reason for the darkness. These are holy, reverent sufferings which no mere human eye can behold. These things are too holy for us. No human eye was permitted to see what transpired on that cross of Calvary during those three hours. No human eye could see the distorted face of Jesus on the cross. The terrors that distorted His face and His body and His soul. No human words 
will be able to capture the suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. This is an altogether holy, separate event. God in the flesh, enduring the wrath of God. This is all God's work. All God's own holy work obtaining the salvation of His people. That's why I said right away in the introduction, we are standing here tonight on holy ground. And the darkness itself gives its own peculiar expression to that. It is a terrifying thought that some will come to know what Jesus suffered in a way. Those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, who turn away from Jesus Christ with hardened hearts, who reject Him as Lord and Savior, they will know. They will be cast by God into that outer darkness And it won't just be for those three hours. But because they cannot satisfy any of the sins, make payment, you know, to do away with those sins, there will be an eternity of hell for those. But for God's people who have been given the faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and who confess Him as Lord and Savior, we won't know what that darkness was like. Even in our own darkest moments in this life, we we won't know this kind of darkness, this outer darkness. But Jesus did know it. The only begotten Son of God. It's a wonder. For, For whom communion with God was His perfect, His life, His perfect desire, And he who was the well-beloved son, what did he experience? The son of the father experiences the wrath of God poured out in its full measure. We should understand in the moment, God did not hate Jesus. God loved Jesus. Jesus was still his beloved son even in that moment. But as the great judge, God was inflicting upon Jesus the punishment of all the sins of his people. And Jesus experienced that wrath, the expression of the wrath of the judge. This is perhaps as close as we can come to explaining this darkness at Calvary. The astonishing thing is that as terrifying and horrible as that darkness was, there's comfort for us in all these things. First of all, of course, we recognize there is comfort for you and me because this outer darkness that Jesus endured was exactly our hell that we, without Christ, would have had to endure. This was God judging Jesus for the sins we committed. What that means is that there is a day when Christ will come again, and that will be judgment day. But the day in which God will visit us and judge us for all our sins has already passed. That took place on Good Friday. Your day of judgment has already passed. 
that great and terrible day of the Lord when the sun will be darkened and the moon shall be turned to blood and the stars won't give their light for us. That terrible day has already taken place because Jesus experienced it for us. Do you realize what that means? Again, this is why we call it Good Friday. There's no condemnation left for you and for me. We are no longer under the curse of the law. Jesus was made a curse for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. Instead of wrath, we have God's love. We have God's favor. Instead of judgment, we have God's mercy. Instead of death, we have life. Instead of darkness, there is light. He made the atonement. He satisfied God's judge, justice. And that comes out very clearly. God speaks to that in the text itself because the darkness did only last three hours. And what happened after that three hours? The darkness lifted. The darkness lifted. And by God lifting the darkness and Jesus coming out alive, out of that darkness, it tells us Jesus endured the full wrath of God. Every drop of the cup of suffering he drank for all for whom he died. You see, if Jesus hadn't done that, it would still be dark. You see, even today, there would still be that outer darkness, that thick darkness enveloping the world. That the darkness lifted and the light returned. The light of God's everlasting love and favor is proof positive that God's wrath and righteousness have been satisfied. Our sins entirely blotted out. We are justified. In Christ. And that's even what Jesus himself declared after the darkness lifted. He said, It is finished. And because Jesus went through the darkness completely, the comfort for you and me is that we will never have to go through the darkness. Instead, we're brought out of the darkness. In our regeneration, we've been brought out of that darkness. Already now, we've, brought out, we've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You are the children of light, and you walk in the light. And already now you are enjoying the beginning of dwelling in the light of God's favor and fellowship. And one day we will be brought into that glory when there will never be any darkness anymore. No night, no darkness. There will be only light. And it won't be merely the light of the sun or the moon or the stars, but it will be the light of God Himself. You see, looking at this event Seeing Jesus go through the darkness, we have hope. We have hope for today and tomorrow and every day and eternal glory. We will never be forsaken because our Savior was already forsaken for us. This is what we celebrate on Good Friday. This is what we celebrate. And all of this is the free gift of a gracious, almighty, holy God who is the maker of the heavens and the earth who has wrought such a great salvation for His people. What a God, congregation. That's the point too. That's ultimately the point. What a God. What a Savior. Praise ye the Lord. Amen.
Let us pray. Our Father, we thank Thee for calling us to dwell on the sufferings and torments of our Savior, that we might see Thy love for us, and we might see that our salvation is secure. And we might know the hope that is ours in thy Son. O Lord, thou God of grace, thou God of light, to thee be the glory both now and forever. May the preaching this evening be worked by thy Spirit in our hearts that we might live to the glory of thy name and live in hope and live in joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.